So I have a question for you. Mm. Are you a coffee drinker? Yeah. Would you consider yourself like an avid New England style coffee drinker? <laughs> As in like I'll take a Dunkin' Donuts regular? Whereas <laughs> yeah, regular or, means with milk and sugar or cream and sugar? Yeah, or like at home like you're not doing a pour over regularly. Like like your normal coffee comes out of a pot. Oh yeah. Okay. Absolutely. How long does your coffee maker last? Um, as in before you have to get rid of it? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, it's funny you mention this. I was thinking about this, like, literally yesterday. Because our, we have, like, a, a cleaning tandem that come every, I don't know how often, every couple weeks, maybe. And they always clean the coffee maker, which I think is a great service. Like, I don't think I've ever had a teening or cleaning tandem that's cleaned the coffee maker before, but they do. And it got me thinking how I think coffee makers are a great deal because I don't know how much this thing costs, but it couldn't be more than 50 bucks or something. And I use it every single day. Yeah. And it lasts for, I don't know, a couple years, maybe, maybe longer. Yeah. I feel like, I, so my coffee maker died yesterday mm. and I thought it was just clogged and uh, I, I performed emergency vinegar based surgery on it. <laughs> right. And now, uh, when was the last time you had, you had uh, cleansed the coffee maker in such way? Uh, I wouldn't say I proactively vinegar in my coffee maker, mm. but I, I'm pretty sure I have vinegared this coffee maker before. No. I, th- I think we're at two and a half years of like a pot a day. Yeah. And it is dead now. I mean, how Cost- long do you think it's going to last? You know, I'm just always curious. Like it, I have definitely reached that point in my existence where like now it's like, I just bought this stupid thing. And then you look at the receipt and it's like three years old, kind of like my shoes. So, okay, now we're getting kind of embarrassing, but I have sneakers that are like not doing so hot. Oh, this isn't part of the show. Don't worry. My wife is like, Jamie's super, uh, (laughs) yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, Jamie is uh, super uh, like embarrassed that I still have these shoes. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I just bought these shoes. They're fine. And there's like a hole in the side of them and not so hot. And so I like go on to like Zappos. I'm like, I wonder when I bought these shoes three and a half years ago. I've worn these shoes for three and a half years, basically every single day. So we were just listening or, uh, uh, while I was eating dinner, Teresa had the, um, family feud on, which I think I've mentioned before. And one of the questions was, um, name something that's old, uh, and beat up, but still works well. And oh boy, what, exactly. Uh, husband was on the list, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but shoes wasn't. And the person said shoes. And I said, oh, that's a good answer. Like I was part of the family. Yeah. And a good uh, answer. Good answer. Yeah, yeah. And Teresa was like, that's an awful answer. That shouldn't be up there. And it wasn't. And I was shamed. So she's, she's on team Jamie on this one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it, my mother was that way too. Like if you... Like my mother always used to tell me as a as a teenage boy, she's like, you should have like three pairs of shoes so you can like wear them down and not have like that one ratty horrible pair. You just rotate them through, and I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. I bought a pair of shoes, and I basically wear them until they are like logistically no longer wearable without augmenting them. Because if you have to <laughs> right. tape your shoes or stitch your shoes, they're too far gone. Oh yeah, especially tape. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If cobbler is part of a conversation and it does not involve peach, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta move on. All right, we're going back to the old opening. Oh God! You're listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast this year, presented 
in partnership with AppSignal. We're going to have more about that uh, a little bit today and more next week, but that's our presenting partner for the year. Excited about that. Uh, sir, it's been, uh, I don't know how long it's been. It's been since before. A year, you, technically. It feels like that. It's been like a, a dog year. Or I think the inverse of a dog year. Yeah. No, a dog year. Yeah, like a fruit fly year, at least. Right. They don't last long. But anyhow, I think we haven't, we have not recorded since, well, we did record one episode that we didn't release, but we have not released an episode since before Thanksgiving. Yes. So how's Disney World? We've got to get some pleasantries out of the way before we just jump right into the programming. Disney was Disney-tastic. That Mm. kid likes himself some Mickey Mouse, tell you what. So I I posted on Facebook either today or yesterday that I'm concerned about the pace of the development of the relationship between Ivy, one of our twins, and Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Yeah, comes in quick and hard. I mean, really intensely so. Like, every time she sees him she gets excited and we've tested like a lot of different ways. We've like tried with different cartoons. We've had it start with goofy instead of with Mickey. It's really, it's Mickey that, that gets her, which I don't get. I always thought that Mickey was popular purely because he was popular, like not for any actual intrinsic good at this point, but she disagrees. She disagrees. Anyways, it was a good trip. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of work. Um. <laughs> oh, I thought you were playing up to the boss. Not like you did a lot of work. More like it, it's it, it's significant effort to to bring a two year old to a correct or nearly two year old to Disney. Correct. Yes, yeah. but it was good. We had a good time. Good weather. Quiet. Lots of Christmas stuff. That's your thing, which it is. So yeah, overall went really well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, good holidays here too. It was uh I feel like I'm kind of getting getting past the holiday portion of the beginning of the winter and into the winter portion of the winter. Um that's because on Christmas it was 75 up here and now it's like 5 degrees outside. Right. Well, I had this I had this uh sort of big plan for what today was going to be like because we had 2 days of like 0 <laughs> degree weather. And then today was supposed to be in like high 30s and sunny. So uh, I planned, I think as far back as Saturday or Sunday, that today would be my first ice skating day of the year. And, you know, so every day I go out and check the pond to see the current, you know, depth of the ice. And I, you know, take the hammer and like whack the ice and try to measure with my <laughs> finger how deep it is. And no, I had a whole thing. Uh, oh, man. yeah, every day I did this. And then yesterday I could kind of walk out there and it was, yeah, it wasn't frozen enough, but it was getting there. It was maybe like near two inches and then really cold last night. And then this morning I went out and I could just walk out and it cracked, like creaked a little bit, but I mean, Hey, it's a pond. It's going to creak a little bit. Okay, You didn't even like walk out. You basically, you were, you were committed to that ice today. Oh no, 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 no. This was before that. So oh, it's part oh, of the story. Okay. So this morning I go out and it, no, it's frozen. I mean, it's a solid three inches deep, maybe. Um, and a little creaking, but not that bad. So I go get the skates. I got new skates. I uh, I hadn't had sort of skates since I was a kid. I got new skates. I, I bring them outside. This is hours later now, maybe at 1230 or something. And it's so warm. I take my jacket off. Now, this should have been a hint that, that, <laughs> that perhaps the the climate had, uh, the environment had changed that I was going to skate on. So I'm like, geez, it's hot. So I take my hat off and I take my gl- uh, gloves off and I take my jacket off. I lace up my skates and I'm like still hot and I get out there. Well, it turns out that 
if the sun beats down for four hours on a pond that's got a black bottom or dark bottom, uh, the ice weakens. <laughs> so, Go on. Yeah, so you watched part of it. I don't know how many seconds you watched, but I decided to to use that new Facebook Live video feature to to uh, broadcast my first pond skate. And it went well, although I think you could even on the video hear the cracking of the ice pretty audibly. I couldn't. I I watched maybe for a minute, and I had to stop watching because I was afraid I was gonna. It was gonna be a snuff film, <laughs> and you were gonna be trapped under the ice and mouthing to the camera, and <laughs> then it would have cut out. Because every once in a while, it would like cut out, and I was like, "There it is. That's it. <laughs> there it goes. There's my buddy Sean." Yeah, that turns out. I mean, I think in as long as you make it through without falling through the ice, skating on thin ice is fun. Yeah. I think that's like life, though, really. <laughs> like, insert any risky behavior yeah, for the nice. Yes, <laughs> Anyhow, so I did it. It was fun, but I've learned my lesson, which is if you're going to go pond skating uh, and the weather's going to be nice, go in the morning. There we go. This is my early winter story. Awesome. All right, so let's get to it. So I think we've got, what, three topics we talked about doing today. Yeah. Uh, topic one uh, I, I did a little uh, Christmas uh, one day project just to celebrate the holidays and give me a break from what I was working on and released uh, a little ember, a little ember, right? A little professor clone in ember. Um, that's fun to talk about. And so I thought that we've got a new segment called shipped it. That's, that's our only, our only hint here. Shipped it. Got to get a jingle. Uh huh. You can sing one. Uh, all right. And then what's the, what's the third topic we had today? We had a third. Um well, man are we good. Yeah, really. I think that we should like just... a couple hours ago. We... Oh, the mailbox. Oh, right. We've got a couple of yeah, we've got a Let's check the mailbox. We do. We have a yeah, well, we we've been off air for long enough now that we've accrued a good collection of uh messages to respond to. But let's do let's do little professor first since we're catching up. Yeah, so, I mean, I just want to make everyone else out there in the world feel okay not having any clue what this was, because I, I honestly had no idea until you sent it to me, and, and then I had to learn about it. Like, it didn't jog some sort of memory I had. I think you're too young. Is you think that's what it is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that, like, snarkily. I think that's, I think that's just what it is. So what's, like, the cutoff? What, like, age range is this a toy of? Well, I'll tell you a little, the little story. So the little ember, or the little, how many times am I going to say this? The, 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 you got to write a book called the little ember. Man, really? A little ember that could. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Little Professor, it was the first um, electronic educational gadget that existed. And the one that people know better is the speak and spell. Do you know the speak and spell? Yes. Okay. So the speak and spell, which will be part of the story, but that was this toy that, or wasn't a toy. It was a, an educational gadget. I think they, they had a, a good aside on this. So I, I read the book about the, um, the speak and spell after, yeah, the day after I made this uh, clone of the little professor. And one of the things I learned in this book, but I learned, I learned many things, but one of them was that, uh, it was actually forbidden. Like you could lose your job at Texas Instruments if you called any of their educational products toys inside the company. <laughs> Which sounds Whoa. like a sounds like a blast to work there. Yeah, blasty blast. Yeah, but anyhow, they uh, so what came before Speak and Spell? I think two years before was the Little Professor, 
And uh, we'll post a link here, and I wrote up uh, a post on Medium about it. But um, the little professor was what they called a reverse calculator, and it had this, like, friendly, mustached... Is that how you say that, mustached? Or is it mustachioed? I think mustachioed. Is it? <laughs> oh, that awkward moment where you don't know if you're being goofed on or not. I, I mean, I have no idea, but that sounds better. So. It looks like mustachioed. And plus, that, that that's like, it's if not the correct uh, adjective, it's a uh, flavor of ice cream, I think. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm going to order that next time I go to Friendly's or whatever. I, I'd like, uh, do you have mustachio? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I would like the waffle cone. The, do, you have, do, do you hand roll your waffle cones? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, and, uh, uh, mustachioed with sprinkles, please. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Anyhow, so there's a mustachioed professor, kind of a, a friendly looking guy with uh, rectangular shaped glasses and a book, uh, with the, the, the display of this little calculator sized toy or bigger than a calculator, but calculator ish kind of looks like a red, uh, cap. And then it's got a calculator or similar to a calculator kind of set of buttons. And the idea is instead of it doing calculations for you, it would show you the calculation and then you had to type in the answer. And then, you know, it would count up how many you got right and wrong. And there were, it did addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And then it had four levels. So the idea is you give it to a kid, I'd say maybe like six to 10 is probably the target range. So elementary school, you give it to an elementary school kid and they can sort of fire it up and then it takes them through kind of the rote learning of, um, you know, basic arithmetic. Uh, and, uh, and anyhow, so, so, you know, it'll say four plus two and, you know, you enter six and then it goes on. If you enter the wrong number, then it, it sort of flashes this error message and then has you enter it again. And I think you get a few tries and then on the last one, it'll, it'll, uh, sort of show you what the right answer was. Then you have to hit a button to continue. And then there was all sorts of like research that they did into why that was the right approach to teaching kind of rote arithmetic. Um, and reading about it. So I, I read quite a bit about this from in that speak and spell book. It really makes me think that we're way lazier now than they used to be because like it was such a big deal to even make such a trivial product. I mean, it literally took me a day to knock off an exact replica of the entire thing. Uh, but it was such a big deal to make it back then that they did like, and they hired researchers to, you know, to do the educational studies and did, uh, pull string toys to get a feel for what the kids would think and blah, 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 blah. And did like, you know, six months of work before they even tried to do any technical work on the thing. Anyhow. So that's the little professor. It's this you know, reverse calculator toy. And, uh, I don't know what got me thinking that it would be an interesting, um, little, I don't know, side project for a day to do, but it must've been nostalgia about, about Christmases because back to the age thing, it came out in 1976 and I'm, I was born in 1977 and really it's first year that was, that was sold was 1977. So I'm kind of the age where it wasn't purchased. Uh, like it wasn't the big toy when I was a kid and I could remember it was the big toy. I think when I was a kid for three years, but everyone had them around their house when I was a kid because it hadn't been long enough that they had like, you know, been thrown out or lost or whatever. Uh, but it had been long enough that everyone had purchased them already. So they definitely are like, uh, I don't know. They're part of my childhood at the Hmm. very least. So anyhow, they, uh, this is an interesting little 
aside, they were quite pricey at the time, which I couldn't believe given how many people I knew had them. But so in 1977, when they were sold, um, their first like big year, they sold over a million units and it cost 20 bucks, which is 84, oh, wow. 84 bucks today. Wow. I know. So it was like a TI-84 or 83 or whatever. Yeah. Speaking of overpriced. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, so, so this is what I made and it's fun. I wrote up, uh, I sort of wrote up how I made it in this medium post, which I think is kind of, I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Anyhow, I just, I just, uh, monologued for a while. So did you get to play with it? Yeah. I mean, I used it as a, as an end user and I was like, I, <laughs> I started doing it and it's like, Oh, level one. And it's, you know, asks you a question. It's like three plus one. Okay. Four, you know, it does that a couple of times. <laughs> I'm like, all right, go up another level. And it's like, you know, again, pretty boring. It's like, you know, blah, 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 doing it. And I'm like, that's what's like crank it. You know? And I press like, level 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 up to like i don't know six or seven and i was like uh <laughs> you like you like t- teleported back to anxious fifth grade you yeah, know second class I was like, oh, this is cool this is this is a cool app <laughs> seen all i needed to see here yeah one thing i liked making uh about making it is that i'm not like a particularly good ux guy and i have some anxiety about about uh, UX, like, am I doing it right? Is, you know, is this as usable as it should be? Blah, blah. But, but making a replica, it turns out is lots of fun because I could just blame it on. That's how it worked. Uh, you know, like Mac, the, my 13 year old 13 tomorrow, actually. Um, he's like, I think it's weird that it, it, you know, there's two buttons, one for on and one for off. I'm like, Hey man, that's how it worked. Yeah. What, what do you want? Back when I was a kid. Yeah, interestingly, so I said that the age range was kind of elementary school, and he's in junior high now. So it's not exactly in his wheelhouse, but it, it was. The, it's one of the first things that I uh, that I've made recently where Adam was to, uh, the nine year old was totally into it. Oh like, yeah, like for he, sure. Like he actually used it for a while, which is pretty impressive because my competition for the little professor here is like Madden two thousand sixteen and <laughs> and Destiny and. Uh, the graphics don't look that good on this. Thing. Yeah, yeah, shut it, kid. Uh, you know what games uh, he's he's really into now besides those two is uh, Star Wars Battlefront. Ah, uh, I just got that around Christmas time myself. Pretty, as a, pretty as good. A nine, a divisible by nine <laughs> person. <laughs> right, right. Well, he's the kid that that just uh, you know shot the uh, the his what do you call him? lasso around your at at's feet yeah what do they call it what do they call that what do we what do we call what the lasso yeah yeah, the thing they shoot out of the the what is it an a-wing i'm not not super nerdy about star wars i know i know i feel like we should i'm i'm super not nerdy about star wars and i feel like we should just end that little side side trip there before we uh you know the thing that luke the thing luke is the yeah. vehicle Luke's towing in, where cable, he it or something? towing cable. There you are. Anyhow, so <laughs> so my competition for little professor was uh, NBA Two K sixteen, uh, Star Wars Battlefront, and Destiny, and he he spent at least three minutes on it, which I considered a massive victory. Boom. And then I went in. Um, I went into his class. I don't know, maybe a week later, and I volunteered to do the craft. I guess what they called it at his holiday party. And uh, I did, speaking of Star Wars, I did these Star Wars uh, Christmas ornaments. So I had like a, 
ceramic white bulbs, I guess, that I drew, uh, like a stormtrooper face on, and then these, uh, I don't know. Yeah, they wood, were good. Wood stakes with a black uh, circle on it that we did the uh, Death Star on. But anyhow, the, the real victory and what made this all worth it is that I uh, so I walk in. He's got this you know, cute little friend next to him. I forget her name. And he's talking to her, and he's like, and, and she starts nudging him with uh, her elbow. And he's looking at her like, what, what, what? And he's like, remember, you're going to ask him something. And he said, oh, oh. Hey, my friend really wants to to make a game, and I was telling her about that little calculator professor guy, and she thought maybe you could come in and teach us how to make stuff. And, you know, and then I I went home and spent the next four days making games to impress the kids. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Yeah, yeah. You did it. You did it. There we go. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty cool. It's a pretty cool little app. What was the hardest part of, or maybe not the hardest part, but at least the most interesting part about, um, you know, developing this. Like, was it the actual, like, domain-like aspect of it, you know? Like, choose a bunch of numbers and see if they mm. add up or multiply or what? Or, Well, I mean, it, uh, sort of progressively it got more interesting as you went through the operation. So, like, additions, the, really, the only thing you really had to think about in addition was, um, and this is obviously not complicated, but you couldn't have it add up to more than two digits. Right. Right, because the original only had two digits. Uh, you know, two spaces that you could type in the numbers. So, I mean, that's not that interesting. Subtraction, all you had to worry about, well, you had to worry about the first issue, plus it couldn't be below zero. So that was like a, you know, a new thing. Multiplication is basically the same as addition. And then, but division was the interesting one, right? Because in division, you you have to have um, it be answerable with integers that are... Um, you know, one or two digits long. So that, that was sort of an interesting problem. Um, not super interesting, but like, you know, more interesting than the others, just figuring out, you know, how I wanted to, to do that sort of calculation of what the possible problems are that work. And then related to that is like, what's a difficult division problem was sort of interesting, right? Like, so Uh, what should go into level one, two, three, and four, and you know how do I how do I do that so it can generate it on the fly so I can sort of like parameterize all of that instead of like building tables which I'm sure is how they actually did it but seemed less fun at the time. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, so that was all like none of it was hard, um, but kind of like they were like little brain teasers, kind of like the things you do in the you know the back of a Sunday paper, except it was on this. That was kind of fun. Um, I think that you know there was a bit of a state machine element to it. You know, the, the, you sort of had to think about it that way. This little gadget would get into these states and then in the different states, only certain things could happen. And, uh, that that was kind of interesting. I thought, um, I thought it was interesting how, how constrained the design language was in the project. Like they, they just didn't have, you know, the luxury that we have now, or we have had for a long time and certainly have now to, to do things many different ways. So it was very constrained. And I actually, back to UX, I think that 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 was sort of a bit of a lesson learned in that if you constrain the whole interface as much as they did, it it doesn't really matter how easy it is because there's only like one way to do anything. And even if that one way is a little less intuitive than you'd think, you learn it easily if there aren't any alternatives. So like, I guess that there, like as a framework, there's this idea that you either need to make everything super intuitive 
and that becomes more important the more uh, variations there are on how you know, acceptable ways to do a given task, or just have there only be one way to do everything. In which case, how intuitive it is doesn't make a whole lot of a difference because you're, you know, you don't have any other option but to figure, like, sort of find your way through that path. Um, so, like, watching Adam, the nine-year-old, play it, he figured it out almost immediately, even though it didn't work like any toys he's used to working. Just because, just like, you know, you just sort of mash buttons and nothing happens except for the on one. And then when it does, you can mash all the buttons except for the go one and nothing happens except for two. Like, it's just... You know, like no harm could happen from hitting certain buttons and there are, you know, it's relatively clear what to do and, and, you know, you learn pretty quickly and then everything worked that way. So once you figured it out, you figured it out. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I think I learned something actually doing that. That's awesome. Yeah. What else? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Ember stuff was, that was easy in Ember and I thought that was interesting all, you know, all by itself sort of interesting. Oh, I've got one more interesting thing besides that. So it was interesting how easy a framework like that is, makes it to, to, to do an app like this. It was just wicked, you know, didn't even have to think about sort of the application infrastructure. It just, I grabbed Ember and used its most basic features and it worked just fine. And that was sort of fun. Uh, and then the last thing was, and this was sort of fun. The display of the little professor is basically one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's nine slots in this, uh, I actually have to look at the type of the display, but this like red display where each, um, each character could only, it's one of those guys that uses like 16 little bars that can light up to display either numbers or letters. So it has nine of those and then they, it's kind of like it fixes the position of the different ones. So like the one is always an equal sign. The one is always the character L or nothing. So, uh, so having like a, a kind of writing a component that would display the various states that the app gets inside of like that nine character display as if it was one of the old school ones. That was kind of fun. I thought, you know, so it was like the perfect one day project. I thought, I don't know. It took maybe six, seven hours to finish and, and, uh, felt like a long time actually while I was doing it. But you know, when you think about that, this was like the biggest hit to wait for two Christmases in a row. It's, and it frankly runs better on the phone than it did on that gadget. It was, it was kind of cool. <laughs> now we got to do a speak and spell. Well, I read that book, as I said, and I'd recommend it. I think I've, I linked to the, I linked to the book in this medium article. If I didn't, I should have, but I think I did. And, uh, it's interesting. It's they, the guy that, or one of the guys that was on the team, one of the four original members of the speak and spell sort of compiled all of the sort of primary artifacts from that project. And they released it as a book where he tells the kind of narrative of how the pro project came to be. And then the creation and release of it. Super interesting. Like both in some ways, sort of easy to relate to. It feels a little bit like all the sorts of projects that you or I would work on and also very hard to relate to. The, the the sort of bureaucracy was pretty intense. The sort of, you know, people think of ninjas and whatnot about software development. And that just was not the deal then. You know, like for example, yeah. one of the reasons they have um, so many artifacts from this project is that the engineers were assigned notebooks, like engineering notebooks. Like, do you even know what that is? This is a good age test too. Like those black and white notebooks? The ones where you had to every single page, like sign the bottom, like oh no, 
Okay. So here, like, let's say GitHub did this. This is how it would work. So you start your job and you're assigned by the corporate librarian, um, an engineering notebook. And it, it would have, it, it sort of looks like, uh, Oh my God, I'm looking right at pictures of this thing. Yeah. Like a big composition book, I guess. Yeah. With a little signature spot on the bottom. Yeah. And so on the front page, it would say like, you know, it's Kyle Daigle's engineering notebook. And then on every page, it has this like, uh, um, index card, like card catalog looking thing. And you would like t- usually title what the, what you were working on. And then you would sign the work as yours and it would have some sort of like legal disclaimer at the bottom. And then your proprietary information. Yep. And then your boss would sign below that and each page would be numbered and, uh, then you date it and you have to, you have to do all of your thinking work in one of these notebooks. So even if you're like, you know, like doodling on something else, you'd like cut it out and staple it to the you know, staple it to the uh, page or paste it on or whatever. Or some people, if they're really neat, would type up their notes and then like paste it into their notebook. And then when you're done with a notebook, you turn it in to the corporate librarian who files it in like the intellectual property library of the company. That's like a physical thing. And then if you want to go get it, you can go get your notebook and take it out to reference what you were working on. And this is like, I think it probably still is a thing in certain companies, but this was like the way that the kind of work you do say was managed. Wow. Yeah. I I worked for a company that had them like that. That was a thing. Um, I wasn't an, an engineer at the time, but, uh, uh, I, uh, but it wasn't sort of managed in the library style that it was back at the time they made the speak and spell and little professor, but like the, it, the, the vestige was still sort of hanging around. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think people would do if you, I mean, maybe we have that now and it's just like, you don't need to do all the formalities around signing and filing. It just is like the company owns everything digital anyways. So I think it depends on the company too, you know, and what exactly it is you're working on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about the sort of like open source culture that so many companies have about you know open sourcing all of their, or not all, but many of the things that they do, um, compared to the you know you must write every thought in this notebook that gets filed into the corporate library uh, for IP reasons, it's quite different. Yeah, I mean, part of me does wish that like something like this existed because it'd be very interesting just to see people's like flow diagrams and thought processes on like solving problems or features that they're thinking of building or in the physical sense you know products they were thinking of building or architecting or engineering i think it'd be kind of neat to be able to go back and say you know even in the the short term you know three three five years and say let's pull out you know joe's notebook and kind of flip through it and you know see if there's any uh anything that maybe makes a ton of sense now that didn't then yeah, I mean, something that the two of us have for kind of the more personal side of our life, Twitter and Facebook, kind of serves that purpose yeah. pretty yeah. well, I think. Yeah. Like, I find myself <clears throat> thinking about Facebook in this way all the time, and that I I know I'm not supposed to like Facebook. And, like, I'm definitely a guy that doesn't like, doesn't like things in that category pretty aggressively, but I think it's great. Like, every time they, like, show the picture, like, five years ago today, and I know there are horror stories of it showing, like, a terrible memory that you weren't, you know, that was, like, a trigger that you weren't ready for. I get that. Like, that's that's a risk. I get it. But it tends to work on me. I'm like, ah, oh, geez, that's that's fun. Look at that picture of, you know, the kids five years younger and looking miniature and all that jazz. And I, I agree. It'd be nice to have something similar for your work world. Yeah, it's, for it's, sure. It's interesting that Twitter doesn't have a, doesn't do anything like that. Cause, cause Twitter could, 
you know, if they like showed me, you know, a tweet, a popular tweet from four years ago, I would be interested in seeing that. Like that would, that would like make me laugh or <laughs> cry. One of the two. I mean, it's not, it's not surprising that Twitter hasn't gotten that right. Just added to a list, but, uh, it would be a good feature. I mean, it seems like you just sort of could stare at Facebook and what they do and copy it and have some success. And to your point, I also think it's interesting that from like a, you know, business work life IP management standpoint, that something similar isn't done to. Got to do something with those new 10,000 characters they're going to give us. Is that the number? That's the, yeah, that's the online joke at least. Mm. Well, there we are. Awesome. So there's my project. Yeah, we uh, you can go to littleprofessor.barelyknown.com and like run it on your phone. Is the um, code open source? It is. It's, it's linked at the top of that article. Yeah. Uh, GitHub.com slash barelyknown slash little dash professor. And there you go. Awesome. You can see how trivially easy it is to write that out. Pretty, pretty easy. Uh... Yeah. Anyway, so there we go. What did you do? Any uh, interesting holiday coding projects to impress Absolutely your kid? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> no, I I disconnected during the holidays, and it was delightful. Yeah, that is nice. Well, I did for two weeks. So I did this before. I, I did this on December twenty first, and I think like two days later, I basically unplugged for two weeks. Yeah. Which was nice. Yeah, I just, I, I, I don't, I mean, I definitely didn't do any work stuff, but I just kind of didn't do anything that was related to my job at all. The first week, I kind of just bummed around and did dad things, video game things, whatever. And then the second week, I had uh, that big party to um, to get off the ground. So a lot of focus on that. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm hoping uh, I, I got a couple, I got access to a couple of new hot uh, APIs that I'm hoping to futz around with. Um, in the next uh, week or two, so maybe I'll have something to share uh, sooner than later. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I think I should I should use my programming ability to like impress friends and family more often than I do. Every time I do it, I think it's fun. Ah, so okay, really short story with that. So I haven't done it yet, but I'm very excited because my wife got me an Amazon Echo for Christmas. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it has a pretty cool SDK that uses Amazon Lambda to like process Ooh, the yeah. you know things. So you can say Alexa, ask you know blank to blank to do anything. Like blank being the name of the Lambda service, and then the, exactly, yeah. and then the second part just being the command. And so I am uh, sort of like over the moon to come up with something actually valuable that my wife will think is very cool. You know, or Cooper at this point, because every once in a while in the morning while I'm getting him dressed, I'll say, Alexa, what's the weather? And she'll start talking and Cooper turns to me and just gives this like, like, oh, my God, that's so cool. (laughs) So maybe I have to teach it some of Cooper's favorite books or something. (laughs) So I've got a I've got an idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here you uh, is. Well, Jamie does listen, but Cooper doesn't. So it won't won't spoil it for him. Well, getting back to the Mickey Mouse theme. So you know what they say on Mickey Mouse Clubhouse when they've got a question. Yeah. Oh, to- ask Toodles. Oh, Toodles. You could just you should make Toodles. Oh, that's such a good idea. I know it is a good idea. I'm gonna be sued <laughs> so well. Oh, whatever, whatever. You know, so Dis- good. All right, that's a great idea. That would uh, I would get big points with Teresa if I did that. 
I, right. I, I also would give big points to the trees if I hung a curtain rod, which would probably be easier. <laughs> <laughs> I did. So the thing that I did most recently that like wowed a family member that, you know, wasn't one of my kids that involved technology is I was at, I was visiting, um, let's see, we were dropping Kayla off for, um, I don't know, at some point it wasn't last year. So it must've been before this year's school drop off, or maybe it was picking up last year. I don't know, but out of university of Wisconsin and my aunt, lives there. So we, we were staying, uh, staying with her and, uh, they had just, uh, her and her, her wife had just been to a party the night before where someone had like a, uh, riddle me brain teaser that involved like coming up with like the set of letters. I think it was like the set of five letters that could, uh, be that, that could form a three syllable, two syllable and one syllable word. And I mean, they, they had spent basically every waking moment between the previous day and then this afternoon, the next afternoon trying to answer it. And like all of their friends are going back and forth with ideas. And then, you know, they'd come up with two of the answers, not the other one. So I said, Oh, we, we can solve this. So I just, you know, wrote a tiny little like 15 line script to go through the dictionary and guess at the possibilities that then you kind of had to parse a little bit by hand once it proposed that 10 or so that could be possible. And I, I've never done it. Like I, there's nothing else I could do that would make them think that I was more cool than that moment. Cause they totally didn't tell their friends how they did it. They're like, we figured it out. And it was not easy to figure out. <laughs> like if you were just, you know, tinkering, that's yeah. we should, that, that's a good segment. If we ever get, if everything else ever gets st- uh, stale, we'll brainstorm ways we can impress friends and family with softwares. Nerd. <laughs> right. We'll call it since I can't dunk a basketball. Yep. All right. Let's do an, let's do a, uh, sponsorship. Uh, this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Braintree. It's about halftime, right? This halftime show brought to you by Braintree. It's code for easy online payments. If you're building a mobile app and searching for a simple payments solution, check out Braintree. The Braintree V.0 SDK makes it easy to offer multiple mobile payment types. You can start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, credit cards, and more, all with a single integration. Uh, go to braintreepayments.com slash railspodcast to learn uh, a whole bunch more. And when you do, you're going to get your first $50,000 in transactions free-free. Again, that's braintreepayments.com slash railspodcast. So here's a little bit more about the uh, the SDK. It only takes a little bit of code to add the ability to accept payments. It's uh, one snippet, about 10 minutes, and you've got your basic basic integration. And if you need help, they're uh, here to help you. They've got great documentation, working examples, and uh, a support team that actually knows how to use their API that's there to provide some backup support, or they could even write the integration for you if you want to go that path. They support... Uh, Android, iOS, and JavaScript clients, and they have SDKs in seven languages, including .NET, Node, uh, Java, Perl, PHP, Python, and Ruby. I like that they throw Perl in there. Yeah, respect your elders, you know? <laughs> uh, and Fortran. <laughs> exactly. Perl, the first language that I had any passing knowledge of. Not a professional knowledge of, but I, I worked uh, worked for a company that... that uh, that service was written in Perl. So I had to tinker now and then. And uh, anyways, that was Perl. 
Anyhow, they have elegant code with clear documentation. Again, just about 10 lines of in-app code and you're off and running. So braintreepayments.com slash rails podcast. Go there, get your first 50,000 in transactions fee free. Thanks to them for sponsoring. All right. Let's do our first shipped it, uh, shipped it segment. What do you think? Let's ship it. All right. So la- the last episode that we published was called Ship It, and people liked it. And it was it was about you know what it takes to go from I'm almost done to get this thing out there. And you What's know, some- a, oh god, why? Yeah, exactly. So shipped it's about the oh god, why? Which is you know it's easy to talk about um, the thing you're going to build or what you've learned and now you know using the the new cool stuff to to. Uh, to write your new application. And it's also sort of easy to talk about refactoring and popular, you know, we're going to take this old crufty thing and make it not old and crufty anymore. But a lot, I don't know about you, but a lot of us, a lot of my time is spent sort of dealing with apps that are alive out there running, like dealing with transactions that like you can't take a break on, like they're, you know, inhaling, you know, hundreds of, of requests a second. And, and you know, that's a thing hundreds or thousands, or I don't know what GitHub's request a second is, but just, you know, uh, uh, these living, breathing things. So we thought shipped it would be a, uh, fun segment where we talk about life kind of life dealing with an application that's out there being run and, uh, or being used by users or other services and all the tricks and techniques and tools and services that we use to, uh, to, to get that done successfully. And this is going to be the the segment that's uh, brought to you in partnership with App Signal. There we go. Anything else about any preamble from you, sir? No. What are we going to ship today? Well, you know, we talked before about about how we manage uh, sort of production exceptions and workflow about that. But then we were chatting about something you're working on right now, and I think that's a really good topic for the first episode, if you or first segment, if you were willing to chat about it. Oh hell yeah! Yeah yeah yeah. Okay, so. You are working on the classic shipped it problem. I yeah. Think. Tell me about yeah. it. You know that time when every every startup aficionado told you to say, F it, just do it how you want to do it and get it out there. Well, then at some point you become GitHub. Right. <laughs> and, and you, at the very beginning, you decided, you know, it would be a hell of a lot easier if we could just have these giant database fields that we could serialize attributes onto using serialized attributes by my fine colleague, Rick Olson. And so if you haven't used this, the idea being that, you know, you have a a giant blob field where you can, um, instead of adding a new database column each time you need, uh, uh, each time you need a new, uh, column, I guess (laughs) database. Yeah. Yeah. Then you could just, uh, jam it on in there in ruby and uh you know have an array or a hash or you you know you don't have to stick just to sort of the database supported types um and so we did that for hooks and um the problem with serialized attributes as you grow is you inevitably want the data in it that you didn't think you wanted <laughs> are you um, saying you, you thought about joining something that was in that data to something else i had that happen yesterday like literally yeah. yesterday yeah, that happens. To, you're like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. We'll just jam it in there because we're never going to need it. And then, you know, 10 hundred million records later, you're like, 
all right, I need I need that thing out of each one of those fields. And now instead of a really stupid, simple MySQL query, you're going into Ruby and you're pulling out the data and you're, you know, unserializing everything and then, you know, taking a million times longer. <laughs> that's, only, that's only a little expensive. Yeah, I, exactly. I feel like this, uh, this segment of Shipted is brought to you by Mongo. Anyhow, continue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do, you, do you wish you didn't have to have schema? Well, do I have the tool for you? Um, but yeah, so I mean, there's kind of some more actual, like, that, that's kind of the jokey, you know, uh, the, the, the jokey explanation. There's also a lot of other problems, too. Um, the data in that field can inevitably grow larger than the blob can support, mm. you know, um, and the, the, my sequel doesn't have a very good way of, of ensuring that you're not going to accidentally try and um, overflow, you know, the, the, the field. Uh, so you can kind of do it in Ruby, but then you're fighting, you know, upstream and, um, uh, you know, kind of so on and so forth. Once you get to a certain scale and you're comfortable with your database, you know, you like to lean on that. Uh, and, and having these serialized attributes are not helping us at all. And so away they shall go. How are they stored right now? Um, so it's like we have this one, um, field on each table that uses serialized attributes, I believe called like raw data. Um, and it's just literally like, um, this enormous, I believe blob. Uh, so is it, I mean, is it like, are you, okay. So you're, you're not storing it like as the string, of JSON or like, you know, the no. stringified JSON. It's the, it's the Ruby object that's been marshaled or marshaled. Is that the word unmarsh? Which direction does marshalling go? Um, I think marshalling is the serializing side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, is that how you're doing it? Is that how it's done? Uh, essentially. So the serialized attributes gem, um, I believe takes it, uh, converts it to JSON, gzips it, and then stores it, or something along those lines. It doesn't use YAML. I don't. I don't believe the the. the I'm, I'm trying to pull up the uh, the gem now. Um, it's it's just Technoweenie serialized attributes. If you're listening along at home, uh, and it's kind of an old kind of an old trusty gem last updated December 3rd, 2013. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it doesn't, it's not using YAML or, or, or Ruby's marshalling. It's just sort of, I guess, making ultimately this JSON, uh, um, object, but after G zipping it and everything like that, um, it gets a little gross. And I mean, there's the, I suppose if the, if the, sort of um, original data structure was JSON. That's not a problem, but the extent to which it was a Ruby object, then you've got the the right. problem of serializing to JSON first. That's a little lossy or, you know, could be depending on how you, no, I, it is lossy depending on what you're doing at least. Right. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, lots of obvious problems. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that like, it, it does give you a lot of quick movement, you know, but it's one of those things that just, bite you in the ass ultimately because you know for example it gives you the ability like like you were saying to use ruby based objects like uh, you know arrays and hashes and everything else instead of just having to deal with uh you know a string or whatever can sort of cleanly get down to a string i mean it's the it's one thing with like json b now to at least there's an argument there which is you know the the at least postgres and i think we talked about this with yeah uh with your colleague. What's your colleague's name? 
Uh, Sam Lambert. Sam. Yeah. So with Sam about, uh, about JSON B support and MySQL, but at least then like you, you can search on it, but th- yeah. you don't even have that opportunity now. No, no. And you know, there, there is some benefit to, to do things, you know, not always. Sometimes it's a pain to drop it out to another table and doing a join or whatever. But generally speaking, it's like there are there are some upsides when you're going. All right. Well, how many you know dot dot dots do dot dot dot? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's nice just to be able to you know do do relational queries the way they want to be done. And so this is coming from the person who has no experience um, using JSONB and or uh, you know Postgres features or anything that's going to allow me to just say like take this giant JSON blob and pretend it's you know. Uh, non-relational, uh, with no schema. Just store this, please. Uh, I don't have any real experience doing that at scale. So, um, so for us, it's always been kind of like let's just go back to old trusty. So old trusty for us is what uh, MySQL table uh, and another Active Record model. And so basically, what I've been doing is is very specifically uh, on a, on a hook at GitHub. Um, Hooks can subscribe to a variety of events, things that happen at GitHub. And right now, those events are just a serialized attribute, an array that you can pass us, an array of strings, and we plop it into that serialized attribute, and away we go. Everything works great. So now we have to split that out and actually use that um, uh, as a whole separate model um, that's very simple. It's basically just, you know, um, a, a thing can subscribe to this event, so it has a subscriber. Uh, so in our scenario that we're discussing, that would be the hook itself, and then it has uh, you know the the name of the event that it's looking for, uh, with a little bit of type checking to make sure that we're only allowing in real events. Um, and so now we have this whole separate uh, we have this whole separate uh, you know model that we're ultimately trying to save to with you know some uniqueness. You can only have one event uh, of of a single type for a single subscriber, right? You, you know you can only subscribe to push on your particular hook once. Um, and so there's a database level constraint, which added a little bit of a horky problem here because there's race conditions with doing things like find and create, you know, um, mm-hmm. if you're running multiple processes. And so you can't just say find this thing. And if it doesn't exist, create it. Because by the time you go and create it, you could even go so far as to surpass the, you know, active record validation. Like, no, 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 that thing doesn't exist yet. And in the meantime, someone else is writing it and bada bing, bada boom. Um, I mean, you didn't mention this before, but it's another sort of classic problem with serialized attributes or the race conditions. Oh, yeah. Been bit by that one a bunch of times. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, so we've been, uh, you know, I've been working on this just for a couple of days, really, to ultimately move this to a new model, you know, handle the fact that if the database comes back with a, you know, record not unique, it's not that big of a deal because all we care about is it's in there once, you know. Um, for that subscriber that the push is there. Uh, and so that's, that's one thing that's going okay. Um, the, the tricky thing is now we have to move all of the hooks that have ever existed, uh, you know, right. to use this new uh, column. So how do you, let's talk about that. So I assume you're not going to take GitHub down for a day to do that. So, uh, <laughs> it's down right now. Have you noticed? Yeah. <laughs> no, we've been talking. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, mm. That was a, a quick, a quick story about that. So, <laughs> sometime during the holiday, I GitHub hooks did go down, like very briefly. Yeah. But I knew because I was it was like holiday time, and I I was waiting for something like a, my Heroku um, 
uh, one of my apps to sort of pull the new commit so that it could build. Like I was like the last thing I was doing for the week and, uh, uh, it wasn't going. And I, I texted you and said, Hey, what's up? Are the hooks down? Like, like a bad friend does. And at eight o'clock at night or whatever it was. And you're like, uh, I'm not on a uh, call for two minutes. So I hope it's down right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my very good uh, colleague Mike McQuaid. Uh, were we we were rotating on and off, and so I believe that he he got it. <laughs> so you yeah, like you got saved by minutes by like two yeah. three minutes. <laughs> yeah, this morning I got woken up at five a.m. for something uh, that wasn't very critical, unfortunately. So I the karma karma comes back around. Yeah, good. You deserved it on that one, I think. <laughs> Uh, well, so what so what are you gonna do about this migration? It seems like there are a couple approaches, and they they seem fun to talk about. Yeah, sure. So with this approach, it's it's kind of, in my opinion, the easiest of migrations, right? Because because we have the data in one place, we have it on the hook record as a serialized attribute, and we're trying to move it over into a new model. The first step is to always create that new model, create the code that's gonna inf- like later on be pushing into that new model once you once you're able to rely on it but continue to read and write to the existing serialized attribute and so that's what i did i um basically uh, uh overrode the setter for events and said okay yeah continue to write to the serialized attribute but then also write this other thing you know write in a place where i can shove it over into this new model so that way from any point after i deploy this this you know step one change the data will go to the serialized attribute and the records will be created in the new model and so then i only have to deal with changes that have happened before um i pushed out this step one change and so that's basically what i did a couple days ago um the next step is now that you have any new updates, ultimately writing to the new correct system um, or new hooks altogether. Now we have to go back through all the old hooks <laughs> and update them one by one. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and so and because it's not because we're because we have to read out of the serialized attribute, I can't just write a fancy SQL query, you know, to do like a whiz bang boom type thing. I have to go one by one open it, you know, let active record read it so I get the serialized attribute, look for the data I need, set the data, write it to the database next. And so at GitHub, we have some code that runs these called transitions. And transitions are anytime you need to update existing database level data. Um, so not like a migration where, and sometimes people, people outside of GitHub or in, in my past life have done this, you know, in a migration, you're like, oh, I need to change this data because this data is wrong. Okay, I'll write a migration to rename the categories that I expect the database to already have or whatever in a migration. Um, in GitHub, we use transitions because we have a set of tools that allow us to iterate effectively over large tables. Um, you know, so if you've ever used like what find each or, uh, find and batch or whatever the actual mm-hmm. thing's called, um, something along those lines. Um, and then the other thing that Sam and his Sam Lambert, uh, and his team, uh, have is a throttler for replication delay. And so sometimes when you are, uh, again, at least in MySQL, are working on a large set of data and you're making a lot of writes extremely quickly because you're just going like, get this hook, write this hook, get this hook, write this hook, get this hook, and you just do that over a period of time, the master uh, and the replica databases can you know, get further and further uh, apart 
with replication delay. And so in this transition, it's a really slick way to make sure that like the, the two don't get too far out of whack and thus ultimately like take the site down. Um, <laughs> right. By basically just checking in on the replicas and making sure that the delay never exceeds a certain amount of time. And when it does, it basically pauses the, the transition. And so it says, okay, we're going to write, we're going to write up, we're going to check our graphs and make sure that things are, or we're going to check my SQL and make sure that things are, um, you know, not too, too far out of sync. Okay. It's too far. Okay. Sleep for two seconds and then check. Okay. Sleep for four seconds and then check. And so that was one of the really cool tools that, um, helps do these large, um, you know, large transitions where I need to actually look at the data. Um, the good news is, is because of what I'm actually trying to accomplish, like, I'm, I don't have to like do any table level locking or like anything that's really going to screw everyone over. Um, and so with that, it's not, these transitions are relatively simple because I'm just pulling up and I'm, I'm basically updating, uh, or excuse me, I'm pulling up a table. Oh my goodness. I'm selecting a row and then I am inserting into a whole separate table that doesn't have any production traffic to it yet. Um, and so in that way, it's been, it's been relatively simple and, and, and nothing too complex. There's been a ton of transitions at GitHub that ultimately have to work very, very slowly over large sets of data because, um, you know, it, you can't go too fast. Otherwise, you'll overwhelm MySQL and thus the site will get a little bit cranky. Now, if you were a betting man, at what point will you get rid of the serialized attributes? So the step three in this process, after the transition runs... Um, step three is profit, Kyle. We all know. Step three is, uh, yeah, profit. And then step four <laughs> is realize you have a lot of debt and... <laughs> yeah, I feel like step three is like uh, is like floor 13 in an elevator. It's like already accounted for. <laughs> we need to go right by it to the next okay, one. So then step four is, and I've mentioned this in the podcast in the past, is actually to use the uh, science gem. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what will happen now is um, when we, in, in the hook delivery system, when we go, okay, should this event be delivered to this hook? We go fires for event. It's just a method. And now that method is replaced with this science block that says, okay, use the old path, but try the new path. And if the two don't match, log it. And so now I'm going to get confidence that I've correctly copied over all the data, the data staying in sync correctly. And, you know, for some period of time, probably days, uh, you know, uh, uh, to make sure that these two new paths are actually working correctly. Um, I'll know whether, oh, geez, there's like, you know, 10% of hooks for some reason that just don't have their events in sync. And maybe that means I, the transition didn't account for something or my code that updates the events uh, in the new model isn't working correctly. Um, but that, that, that gem makes it super simple um, for us to just, you know, do that, report that. Um, and I can do that for like a subset of users too. So I can say 1% of hooks should run the, you know, um, the candidate, you know, run, run, run the new code. Uh, don't use it, just run it. So I'm not incurring too much time uh, in the process uh, as well. All right. So you, you still haven't bet. So when does that mean you, you get rid of that column? I mean, bye-bye old serialized attributes. Oh, um, pretty fast. That whole pro you did not compensate me for this comment, but it feel this feels like a decent size effort. 
Um, thank you, Sean. I feel <laughs> validated really good about that. Yeah. Uh, no problem. Yeah, I mean, it's like luckily it's one of those things where every you know these problems come up in every project and i think you know i've been lucky that when my colleagues have come up against these projects there are bits and pieces of of tools that i can pull against even though nothing is solving this actual problem like moving from a serialized attribute to a model um mike mcquade and i are, are i think some of the few uh, at github that are um you know really diving into this at the moment you know but it's on everyone's sort of radar and so there's not like a playbook but luckily i was able to say okay you know i know i'll have to transition the data and so there's some people that have written some great code around throttling for that that i can i can pull and use and then same thing with the science um or it might be called scientists technically but um but i can use that gem to make sure that my results aren't like totally horrible and you know gonna ruin everyone's day when their hooks don't get delivered so um it's not a it's 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 a relatively big project primarily because of the amount of data um uh so yeah we're definitely uh, and the risk is high i mean like you can't screw that one up no yeah no but luckily like i said i mean there's like enough checks and balances that i can run this without actually running it for customers for as much time as i need to you know, and so it might, it might, it could just be a couple of days. It could be a week or two. Uh, but I, at some point I can run it for a hundred percent of customers without using it for a hundred percent of customers. And I mean, if that comes back without any mismatches, then we're, we are honky dory. Mm-hmm. So, well, sir, that was a, that was a good first, uh, installment of shipped it. And then I'm going to ship it. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing, you know, once you shipped it, you're going to ship a lot of little things that are not as glorious as that initial thing, <laughs> like yeah. a huge migration of serialized attributes to a new model. Yeah. No, that's good. Okay. I'm glad we did this. We should do this more. Awesome. Well, next week uh, in shipped it, we're going to tell you a little bit about uh, an offer that we are uh, working on in partnership with app signal. But if you want to go check them out AppSignal.com, and you'll learn more about, uh, our shipped it, uh, promotion with them next week all right so we've been going about an hour so i think we've got a lit just a tiny bit of time left for one piece of feedback yes. in our in our mailbag open the mailbag all right next week we've got an audio one that we've had for like a month and a half that we'll do next week so if you're listening and you've submitted an audio question we're gonna do that next week but we don't have it queued up right now my low rent hold my iphone up to the the uh <laughs> microphone approach we don't even have time for that that's where we are right now Okay, so I'm gonna I'm going to not read this listener's name, but read the email. I think it's not identifying <laughs> the content's not identifying. At least I'll skip over anything that is. But it's a good question, kind of thing that I I think we uh, each individually hear often. We can talk about that for a few minutes. Okay, so uh, listener, what should we call this ra- this uh, anonymized listener? Uh, J- John or Jane? Listener Jane. Good. Listener Jane writes, uh, I'm stuck in an organization where I want to make things better so I can enjoy my job more. We've got a Rails 4.2 app in Ruby 2.2. It's a bit over three years old so far. We've described like every company in California. <laughs> Except for GitHub. <laughs> Except for, exactly. <laughs> so, 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 so far, all we know is that Jane does not work at GitHub. That's what we have figured out. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, back to Jane's uh, email. Uh uh, but our developers uh, that have been around for a while are pretty attached to the original code. 
There's a lot of pain we feel maintaining code itself instead of solving our domain problems, and we fight Rails conventions more than we follow them. <laughs> We're still describing every company. Yep. <laughs> Feels like early on, people did not look elsewhere for libraries to solve problems uh, like uh, accounting or maintaining histories. <laughs> Again, still describing everyone. Uh, also pretty simple rules like those that Sandy Metz preaches are seen as ideal and unattainable. And I get treated like someone who's being a little bit of a, uh, perfectionist about pristine code instead of just being a pragmatist and getting stuff done. In reality, I just want to get closer to conventional and maintainable code and away from broken procedural code that only the original folks know how to, uh, to deal with. I'm a programmer because I like building things, not because I am uh, obsessed over my own pristine code. Probably been in, uh, spent two years in Ruby, uh, sort of playing around before getting my first Ruby gig, and I'm concerned about maybe I need to leave, but I don't want to uh, quit too early. Do you, you guys have any recommendations for dealing with these treacherous waters? And he also thanked us if we made it this far, or she. Jane, <laughs> Jane thanked us. Nailed it. Okay, so th- this feels like what? Wh- what percentage of developers feel this way? Do you think? Eighty, like maybe more. most. Yeah. So I think that's like my point number one for Jane, is that you are absolutely in the majority with this feeling. And uh, I would say, without getting too like self congratulatory, I think that it's it's also something to be said around. If you do feel this way, like it's probably a good thing professionally for your career. You know, I mean, I feel like you could be, uh, you know, even at a great company and I feel like you should still like sort of feel this way about something, you know, like I'm unhappy with how we, how we do X, Y, and Z where I'm at. Uh, and so I, I think that it's probably, you know, should, should, should cover like almost 99.9% of, you know, good developers and then probably like 80% of all developers. (laughs) So in my experience, the, I wish I had a good analogy for this, but in my experience, this is much more in the developer's control than they think it is in in the following way. In that like you don't control the situation on the code base. Like, so let's say in this one, it's a three-year-old project. There are multiple people that have been there since the beginning, probably 20,000 lines of code or something in the main app. Like maybe more, right? So that's a lot. There's going to be 20, 30, maybe thousand lines of Ruby code in a Rails app, which is a lot. Now, even if it's 15,000, that's a lot. Um, and I'm guessing just based on the little bit I know about Jane's company here, you know, that, that it'd be about that size app. So, you know, you're not gonna, no matter what you do, you're not going to like blink your eyes real hard and have things be all precious, but whatever you're working on, you can neaten up pretty nicely. Most of the time, like your little corner of the world. And I find that that's true of testing too. Now, sometimes you need to like rig up the universe to test one thing and that that can be a little bit hard, but usually when, you know, if someone's working on, if Jane's working on a new feature or refactoring an existing thing or, you know, adding a new capability or whatever, you've got basically the control to say, okay, well, I'm going to do this in the way that I think is right. I'm going to follow the conventions to the extent that I can. And I'm going to like, uh, isolate my little world into a, and make it testable, even if everything else isn't tested. And, uh, you know, so what if it's like part of a bit of, bit of a pig pen, you know, from Jane's point of view, uh, you know, Jane's work can be somewhat neat that day. 
like I, I think that 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 tends to be more true than people think. Do you think so? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that you know, I, I, I think the thing that I have struggled with uh, uh, similarly has sometimes been when to, you know, put your nose down and just say, you know, no, I can make this better, and I'm going to make it better right now, you know, and knowing when. Uh, you know, in a, like 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 she said, in an ideal world, you know, her coworkers think that she would rather just be sitting around and like always just refactoring everything and never actually shipping any real code. And I think that you know some of the simplest things that I've seen developers do successfully on long running projects or you know older projects has been, um, you know, submitting a PR that does a useful abstraction in the way that you would like it to be done moving forward. And not necessarily just in the style that app is currently in. So what am I saying? I'm saying if you're looking at a long method that has a bug in it, uh, you know, instead of just fix writing a test, fixing a bug, and moving on with your life, you know, write the test. You can fix the bug and then see, okay, should this be more method? Should this be its own object? Should this be its own class? Because when you're solving that small bug, to do that one more step of saying, okay, can I make this actually better? You know, it's an easy thing for you to show your team without them feeling like, oh, you're going off on a tangent and, you know, you're just going crazy rewriting this whole system. Because I feel like most of the arguments about this, about, well, we'll never get that good. Our code will never be that good. We're a real app solving real problems. You know, I feel like most of the resistance there is just around um, the fear of, you know, having to flick a switch and then suddenly be writing this in a super rigid way. And I find that I, I've learned from colleagues uh, the best around, you know, fixing old code by them just coming in and saying, hey, I'm just going to make this one thing work better. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to return like an enum here or like, you know, a, um, you know, like a giant class variable or what, whatever helps make it clear that we're returning this instead of the number seven, you know, or whatever. Uh, little things like that with some explanation can go a long way because you'll find that you're teaching your team um, the way that, that you think the code should be written by having them agree with your extremely simple and non-argumentative pull request. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's an easy way. Well, uh, you know, at least a solid way to to start getting things done the way you want without having to. And when I was early on in my my career, I definitely did this, and I I look like such an idiot for doing it. Like trying to have that like come to Jesus meeting oh, with no. your team, where you're like, "Hey, we're, we this." I went to a talk and it told me. That. Oh, no. I ran. Yeah, I ran RuboCop and. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, or you know, we should be writing more classes, or we shouldn't be using Active Record directly, or we should be. You know, dot dot dot. dot. Don't even bother. Um, I I think if you're worried about any sort of like backlash around you, you know, getting questioned about why are you doing this, why are you going off and rewriting this whole system, don't rewrite a whole system. You know rewrite a class or i think i spent three hours the other day and i just completely rewrote a test file because it was an old test file that just got so gross and crufty and people obviously didn't know what fixtures existed and what they were stubbing and so i just said all right three hours here we go and i made really tiny commits with long notes so if there was any single one that you would go in and be like, wait, why the hell did he do that? Oh, and you could read, you know, uh, like a you know, pretty substantial three or four sentence note 
Um, or when you said tiny long. commits, I thought you meant like OFML. <laughs> you know, geez, I'm an idiot. <laughs> oh, shoot. Reverting the reversion. Damn, 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 damn. <laughs> um, F you, 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 you. Most of it was like, you know, uh, I'm a big I'm a big proponent in tests. Like if you use like context blocks or whatever, like that, you know, class methods have a dot and instance methods have a pound. Um, cause I find it an easy way. Like if you're, if you're going to describe your tests in a method format instead of a behavior format, I find that really simple to understand. Um, you know, so Kyle, uh, class methods are a code smell. Anyhow, keep going. <laughs> so see, well, I'm solving one problem at a time here, Sean. Uh, you know, I didn't so, even, I didn't even mean that. I've, I've been in that meeting before though. <laughs> I know. So I just went through and did that, you know, and like, and that was one commit. And so the worst case scenario there too, when you're doing like those sorts of like, I'm going to take a couple hours is that you could just revert that one commit. If, if that becomes like the hill that someone wants to die on, you know, mm-hmm. but the rest of your work is, is solid and you can, you know, merge the PR. And so uh, that's what I would do. I would find something really small and simple and preferably fixing a bug instead of just going in and saying, I'm going to refactor this because I see pain here because then the team will go, Oh, you know, Jane fixed the bug and wow, I guess we can have classes that aren't just, you know, active record models or whatever. I think you've had many good pieces of advice. Let me, let me see if I can recap for Jane. Okay. Piece of advice. Number one, make, uh, PRs, not meetings. Yes. Don't be that. that. I'm going to make a t-shirt that says that. Right. <laughs> that's not like a t-shirt. Um, and, and that's like, don't, don't have the meeting. Don't be that gal or guy. Uh, okay. That was good. Uh, number two, uh, make molehills, not mountains. Like, you know, make small things, not mm-hmm. big, huge things. Mm-hmm. And I, I would add the third, which is like, just take a look around what you're already working on. That's like pretty fenced off in your own world. And, uh, be, be the change you want to see in the world, Jane, in your own little sandbox of, you know, fenced off sing, you know, you're responsible for it, the world. And, you know, see if, uh, it's easy to practice what you preach or just have fun with it before, not before, I don't really agree with that, but as you're, you know, uh, as you're also making PRs that maybe are changing how things that, that currently exist work, you know, take some more, if you're going to take more risks, do it in an area that's new that you're responsible for, because then you don't have the sort of unintended consequences risk to deal with. And I think, you know, it's probably worth acknowledging that, you know, some engineering organizations are toxic, uh, you know, and you may not be able to get the change because there might be such a strong, um, say drive from sales or something to get stuff done that just any amount of do goodery will be looked down upon. Um, and then it might be time to find a new gig. Um, but, but I, I, assuming you're not at that point, I think there's a couple things you can do without trying to get everyone to agree with you. Yeah. That's like step five. If like we did steps one, two, and four, you know, step five, if that doesn't work is maybe, you know, if you've made it to step three, you've profited a little bit. So exactly. Totally agree. Well, we're back in action, Kyle. We've made it through an episode. We've had no audio catastrophes. We made it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, it's good to be back, you know? We shall record next week. Yes. Till next time, if you want to file a file. Good, good. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm barely known. And uh, do check out the uh, show notes for that uh, little professor article on Medium. I think you'll enjoy it. And I am K Daigle. Oh, toodles. <laughs>
Yeah. Peace. You should definitely do the O-Toodles. Um, That's a really great idea. It'd be a winner in the house, I think. Oh, for, uh, oh toodles. Now, can you have it respond to any, you know, any audio clip? Or does it have no. to be, like, preceded by Echo Toodles? Or Hey Echo? You have to say, Alexa, ask oh. Toodles to find my... I think that still works. It's so funny. Oh, no, it totally is. Now I'm just going to go for it, though, because now I want to go buy those little tiles and stuff, you know, stick them on things so I can say, <laughs> Alexa, ask Toodles where my wallet is. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You know? What are what does Toodles usually know? It's like, well, it's it, it's fun stuff like, oh, Toodles, uh, uh, what can I use to, to trace the... All right, here, here's a joke, ready-made joke for you. What can I use to trace... Um, Mickey's face and ears in this drawing. And the options are like a cup and a saucer, an umbrella, or this hot dog. <laughs> or the mystery mouse tool. Yeah, that's right. The, the, there's the fourth box. <laughs> it's like, that's right. It's the cup and the saucer. Like, if it could just do that, that's funny as hell. Yeah, no, I agree completely. <laughs> this is this has got to happen now. 